The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, it's exciting. We're, uh, we are moving on in uh, our sermon series on the book of Revelation. And this morning we get to uh, start the seven letters uh, that are within uh, those first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and that's what we'll be reading this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here's what's said to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you bless the reading of your word this morning. You've given your word to strengthen us in our faith, to teach us more about who you are and what you have done and what you call us to. And that's what this passage does for us this morning. We thank you, Lord, for preserving it. We thank you, Lord, for the vision of our Savior that we see in this letter. We ask you, Lord, that by your Spirit, you will open our eyes, that you will unclog our ears, that we may see and hear your truth this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So last week, uh, we had Jason preach here, and he preached on uh, the end of chapter 1. Uh, verses 9 through 20. And you may remember in that passage, if you were to flip back, uh, there's that grand vision that John has, one like a son of man he sees. And as Jason preached that passage, he reminded us of two um, central aspects of the Christian life. He said that no matter how isolated or useless or vulnerable we might feel, We're not alone. 
and our lives have purpose. We're not alone, and our lives have purpose. And friends, these are needful reminders. They were needful for the prophet John as he sat on the island of Patmos. He needed to be reassured of the Lord's gracious presence, that he still had a role to play in God's drama. And like John, we too, here and now, we need to be overwhelmed with a glimpse of our Savior in all his resplendent glory. We need to feel like John, the Lord's powerful, outstretched hand on our shoulders, reassuring us that in him, there's nothing to fear, and that he's with us. And friends, we need to hear, like John, and we need to receive the things that the Lord has for us, his servants, to do. And, you know, in many ways, that's what these seven letters that we're picking up, that's what these are designed to communicate to God's people. And so before we dive into this first one written to the church in Ephesus, I want to make a few introductory comments that apply to all seven letters. So these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, they, they make up the first seven-fold cycle in the book of Revelation. If you've read Revelation before, you know that there are several cycles. And this is the first of the seven cycles. And then we'll be, you know, after chapters four and five, we will see several other sevenfold cycles, like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And as Andrew pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the number seven, and really this goes to every number used in the book of Revelation, but the number seven is used symbolically throughout the book of Revelation. And it conveys this idea of completeness or perfection or fullness. And the same is true with these seven churches that the Lord is addressing. And we're invited, therefore, to read these letters, not simply as Jesus' particular message to congregations within a certain historical time period or geography. We're invited to read them as his messages to all his churches, even to us here and now. Don't let the fact that they are addressed, in our case today, to the angel in the church of Ephesus, don't let that um, detract you from the fact that this message is for you and it's for us. And in fact, this is really hinted at even within the letters themselves. You'll notice that at the end of each of the letters, you hear this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The idea that this was Jesus' message to all of us. I want you to notice, too, that in each of the letters, an angel is addressed. And, and I wonder if that has struck you as odd. Uh, I, I imagine it has. And actually, it may be more odd than you think. The Greek word for angel really just means messenger. And this used to frustrate my, my students at Faith Christian when I taught Greek. In fact, I have a picture of one guy who will remain nameless, who, uh, this one student, who just... He thought he had been duped by the English translations of these angels thinking of these celestial beasts. I had to, beasts, I just said beasts, these celestial beings. I had to encourage him, no, no, there really are heavenly beings called angels, but it just depends on the context. All right. Um, but this word is used to refer to human beings. So, for example, in Matthew 11, Jesus actually refers to John the Baptist through the prophet Malachi, he quotes Malachi 3.1, and he says, Behold, 
I send my messenger, that's the word angel, angelos, I, I, I send my messenger before your face. And because this word can be used for people, human beings, some have suggested that what the Lord Jesus is doing here is he's addressing certain individual human beings, um, maybe like letter carriers, those who carried the letter. Um, Tychicus uh, is mentioned in Paul's letters as, one who, as the one who took the letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians. Maybe that's what he's getting at here. And I would say, no, I don't think so at all. There are good reasons for thinking that the Lord Jesus is actually addressing angelic beings, heavenly beings. Uh, for one, throughout the rest of the book of, old, of, of Revelation, this word means heavenly being. It's clear. Uh, secondly, um, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature that we're going to, through a little bit in the Sunday school class. And heavenly beings are a fixture of apocalyptic literature. We should expect to see them. And one other thing that's really interesting is in Revelation 9.1, we actually hear an angel described as a star falling from heaven. And I want you to remember at the end of Revelation 1, last week, Jesus revealed the mystery. He holds the seven stars in his hand. And what does he say those stars are? He says those are the angels of the seven churches. So, so I think Jesus really is addressing heavenly angels here. And, and what he seems to be doing is he's addressing them as representatives, as guardians of his people. And this is similar to how the angel Michael is represented in Daniel 12. He's a representative, he's a guardian over Israel. And interestingly, if you read uh, the first few verses of Daniel 12, you'll see that, that uh, Michael is actually associated with the stars as well there. So there's a, there's a logical connection to Jesus addressing the angels here. The point is this, in addressing the angels, Jesus is addressing his people through their heavenly guardian representatives. There's a corporate identity that's going on here. And friends, this ought to encourage us. It really ought to encourage us. You see, throughout the book of Revelation, it is only unbelievers who are found to be earthbound. They have no connection to heaven. As you read the book of Revelation, you'll see unbelievers are mere earth dwellers. And so what Jesus is doing as he's addressing these angelic representatives of his people on earth, he's encouraging them that they're not mere earth dwellers. They are citizens of heaven. They are represented in heaven. And what an encouragement that ought to have been for John on Patmos. How encouraging that must have been for the Ephesians, for the Smyrnans, all the other churches surrounded by the pagan secular uh, empire of Rome. And friends, what an encouragement that ought to be to you and me today. Well, one other thing that I want you to uh, pay attention to as you read Revelation, as we go through this series, I want you to notice the structure of these letters. They all follow a similar structure. You'll notice that Jesus addresses each letter with a self-description. And that self-description frames the letter, and it's really significant. He's drawing on chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. So as you read each letter, go back and look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. In the body of the letter, 
Jesus gives intimate knowledge of each church, and he does so by saying, I know. That's what he says. He says, I know to each of them. Each letter contains um, Jesus' commendation, uh, rebuke, or both. Each letter contains commands for the recipients to follow. And then finally, each letter contains, at the end, he who hears and to the one who conquers. It's a consistent refrain. Keep those in mind as you go through the book of Revelation. And so with those things in mind, what did the church in Ephesus need to hear from the risen Lord Jesus? And what do you and I need to hear this morning? Well, I want you to notice that right off the bat, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, last week, as Jason preached, we read that amazing, glorious vision of one like a son of man. And what you may not realize is that that vision itself is echoing Daniel chapter 7. But what I find especially exciting, if you were to flip back to Daniel 7, which is probably a good idea, if you flip back to Daniel 7, what's especially exciting is that you'll notice that John in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, he's not just drawing on that vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds and presenting himself before the Ancient of Days, uh, which begins in verse 13. Instead, he merges that vision. I want you to see that. He merges that vision with the preceding vision of Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, which begins in verse 9. And so that in Revelation 1, 12 through 19, Jesus himself is presented to John in all his divine glory. He has woolly, snow-like hair, just like the Ancient of Days. He has eyes of fire, And furnace-refined heat, just like the fiery throne the Ancient of Days is on. And he has an everlasting dominion and glory. Again, just like the Ancient of Days who took his seat enthroned above the cosmos. Friends, this is a glorious vision of Jesus. And as Jesus begins to address the church in Ephesus, he picks up on this vision that John had just received And he reminds his recipients of who it is that's speaking to them. He's the one who grasps firmly the stars in his hand. He's the one who not just is in the midst, but actually walks among his lampstands. He walks among the churches. Friends, it's a description aimed at reassuring his readers of his guidance, of his protection, and of his presence that heaven and earth are brought close together in intimate fellowship only in and through him. This was the message that they needed to receive, just the message. You see, the Ephesians faced daily pressures to live in conformity to an idolatrous and wicked pagan culture. And, And I mean that literally. Daily, they were surrounded by pressures. The city of Ephesus was peppered throughout with statues and temples to their gods and goddesses, like Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. Temples to Zeus, to the Caesars, even to Rome herself. 
And in the midst of this climate, it would have been very easy to lose sight of reality. It would have been very easy for them to forget, maybe even to reconsider whether or not there is only one God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that he's actually interested in and concerned about his people. He wants fellowship with them. And friends, we need to listen to what Jesus is saying here. We need to hear what the Ephesians needed to hear. After all, it's easy for us, isn't it? In the midst of the trials and the pressures that we face in our own culture, it's easy to lose sight of what's true about Jesus, don't you think? We can fixate on the difficulties of our own circumstances. We know that we're bombarded by unrelenting and rebellious messages of the unbelieving world around us. And in exhaustion, maybe even despair, we're tempted to believe the lie that we're all alone. That God is far from us and that he doesn't care. But friends, we need to hear that Jesus, the radiant, ascended Son of Man, is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. He walks among the lampstands. Friends, we need to remember that he's present with us. He's guiding and protecting us. And we need to find comfort in that. But this self-description in verse 1, it doesn't simply convey comfort. It's also something that supports the authority that Jesus claims to speak into our lives. You see, because he walks among his people, he knows the details of our lives. He knows all the victories and all the failures. And because of that, he's able to speak to them directly. And that's what we see him doing as he continues to address the Ephesians. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Here we see the Lord commending the Ephesians for the faithfulness, for their faithfulness. They'd worked tirelessly hard. And for the sake of Jesus' name, they'd refused to tolerate the wicked, aberrant teachings of false apostles. Men who'd come among them, assumed positions of authority, and most likely begun to teach the Ephesian Christians to accommodate to the idolatrous philosophies and practices of Roman culture. You'll notice later on in verse 6, you'll notice uh, that Jesus uh, commends the Ephesians for hating the works of the Nicolaitans, just as he hates them. And I think that's just a more specific reference to what he's referring to here in verses 2 and 3. And when we get to the letter to the Pergamums later on, we'll talk a little more specifically about what that false doctrine might have been because it shows up there as well. But here I just tell you this. I think it's basically religious syncretism. It's, a call, it's essentially idolatry infiltrating the church. The Christians in Ephesus are being called to accommodate to idolatrous practices and beliefs. But the point is this. Jesus commends the Ephesians 
for their commitment to doctrinal purity. And it makes sense that the Ephesians were vigilant in this way. After all, in the beginning of his ministry to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul had exhorted the leaders there to be on guard, saying to them in Acts 20, verses 29 and 31, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men uh, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. That's what he tells them. And even later on, Paul gave Timothy, who was overseeing the church in Ephesus, he gave him similar instructions, saying to him in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You see, the Ephesians had apparently heeded Paul's admonitions. And they'd been commended for it. And friends, like the Ephesians, we here and now must be no less on guard against false teaching. Friends, there is no doubt that we as God's people are facing extreme pressures today to assimilate the prevailing beliefs and practices of secular culture, particularly with regard to human sexuality and personal identity. And you know, combating these pressures is exhausting work. And it's also tricky. It's tricky work. You see, false teachers, they tend to disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. And in our zeal to preserve the truth, there's no denying that we ourselves run the risk of being maligned as divisive and self-righteous. But we shouldn't let those things dissuade us from the work. No, the church must stand firm in the truth. And so we need folks uh, like the New Testament scholar Robert Gagnon, who's done more in my estimation than any other contemporary scholar to counter pervasive current false interpretations of the Bible's consistent teaching on the sinfulness of homosexuality and on other sexual perversions. We need men like that. We need women who stand up for that. And as members of the PCA, our denomination, we need our denomination and its leaders to continue to uphold the truths of Scripture and to contend for the faith once delivered, testing the spirits, as John says in 1 John 4, to see whether they are from God. And friends, even all of us, we ourselves as God's people, we need to embrace that Berean spirit that caused the folks there to examine the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was true. The Ephesians had remained faithful to this calling. And the Lord commended them for it. And according to Ignatius of Antioch, most likely they remained faithful up through the second century. And yet I want you to notice something. I want you to notice 
what Jesus says to the Ephesians as he continues in verse 4. He says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, in their fervency for the truth, the Ephesians had forsaken the cardinal Christian virtue, love. New Testament scholar Buse Fanning, he puts it this way. He puts their failure this way. He says, the offense is that their persevering toil and vigilance against false teaching for the sake of Christ has become all hands and head with no heart. It's a veneer of busy outward activity without the inward motivation of of sincere love in response to God's great love for them in Christ and without the grace and love toward others that is needed. They have abandoned or forsaken the heartfelt love that once characterized their Christian conduct. And I want you to notice that Jesus takes this Ephesian failure as a personal offense. He says, I have this against you. And so he calls on them to repent, lest they lose their identity as a lampstand, as one of his churches. Perhaps you're sitting here today, and you're thinking to yourself, my, that seems like a pretty severe overreaction. I mean, so they've not been as loving as they used to be. They're still contending for the truth. That's what's really important, right? But friends, to think this way is to lose sight of the centrality of love in the life of a Christian. It's to fall prey to the common lie that we must choose between the two. Either to be valiant for truth, yet unloving, or we can truly care for people, even while playing fast and loose with God's word. We've got to choose. We can't have both. Brothers and sisters, love is to animate all of our actions, even and perhaps especially our zealous defense of the word of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 John 3, 18. He said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Did you hear that? Love not merely in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love for God, his truth, and one another manifest in harmonious, God-exalting action. That's what we're called to. But you know, I, I think we all know from experience how difficult this can be, don't we? I'm sure we all have memories of encountering someone, and maybe those memories are pretty darn fresh. Fill in the blank. Call him Mr. So-and-so, like Ruth. We all have memories of encountering someone who, because of how they spoke to us, because of how they articulated their position, however right, they left us with a foul stench rather than the fragrance of Christ. Like the Ephesians, it's easy for us in our own desire to honor and preserve the truths of the Bible, which is right and good, to be motivated less by our love for God and his people and instead to be motivated by fear or desire to be proved right. 
As sinners, our vision tends to get clouded. Our zeal for the truth eclipses our love for God's bride. And we fight the good fight, no matter the cost. The commentator James Resig, he puts it this way. He says, passion for truth, especially religious truth, can so easily degenerate into an unloving witch hunt against those with whom we disagree. Friends, inasmuch as we fall prey to this, our Lord, just as he did with the Ephesian church, our Lord takes personal offense with our failure. And we need to hear that. You see, Jesus is exhorting the Ephesians here. He's exhorting you and me today in the strongest terms that love and doctrinal fidelity, these two must go hand in hand together. You know, I'm reminded of how the Apostle Paul seems to just beautifully capture the importance of Jesus' message here in that well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember what he says in verses 1 and 2? He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So how do we counter this loss? How do we recapture our first love? I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't simply pass a disinterested sentence on the Ephesians. He doesn't just throw down the hammer and then walk away and leave them without hope. Instead, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You see, our Lord, despite the severity of the Ephesians' failure, he graciously and compassionately offers them guidance on how to rekindle their first love. And we shouldn't miss the significance of the order here. Notice that before exhorting them to repentance and action, he calls them to remember. You see, when we fail to live out love as God desires, and brothers and sisters, we will fail. When we do that, the Lord uses our memories of the first things we learned when we came to know him. Our memory of the truth of his love for us and of his desire for us to live in love with one another. He uses these memories to draw us back to faithfulness. Again, as James Resige puts it, remembrance is a necessary prelude to a change in direction. Did you hear that? Remembrance is a necessary prelude to a change in direction. We must remember when we fail. And, you know, this reminds me of what the prodigal son did after he'd squandered his father's inheritance and found himself destitute and alone. Remember how Luke narrates the story? In Luke 15, verses 17 and 18, he says, But when the son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
You see, the prodigal son remembered his former life and the abundant generosity of his father. And it moved him to action. It moved him to confession, to repentance and humility. Friends, do you see the wisdom, the love and the compassion of our Lord in his rebuke and admonition here? With them, the one who holds the stars in his hand, who walks among the lampstands, he's not abandoning his people. He's seeking our good. As he says to the Laodiceans later in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Well, as his letter comes to a close in verse 7, We hear Jesus calling on the Ephesians to heed his message and in that way to receive his blessing. And while his blessing here is no less than the blessing of eternal life, just as it is in his promises to all the churches, and hopefully we'll develop that more as we go, it's particular imagery here as a right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God is especially fitting for his letter here to the Ephesians. You see, in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the holy place, there was a golden lampstand, and this is described in Exodus 25. And this golden lampstand was wrought in tree-like form. And it was meant to symbolize the tree of life, which was found at the center of God's paradise in the Garden of Eden. And although Jesus had earlier warned the Ephesians in verse 5 that If they failed to repent, then he would come and remove their lampstand and thus their identity as one of his churches. And by the way, this is a fitting judgment. After all, God's people, as his lampstands, they're called to be a light to the nations, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 42. But here, Jesus says to the one who hears, And to the one who conquers, I will give access to the tree of life, to the indestructible lampstand. In other words, he promises intimate, eternal table fellowship with with the triune God. Perhaps you're here today. And this, this doesn't come as comfort to you, but rather discouragement. And you're replaying your past failures. You're you're hearing in your head your harsh and defensive words spoken ostensibly for Christ's sake, but really for pride's sake. And you're thinking to yourself, Tobias, I could never be one who conquers. The Lord's promised blessing here is really nothing more than a false hope for me. But let me remind you of what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. He writes this. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus 
is calling us in this letter. He's calling us here and now to put our faith in him and in his victory. To live our lives relying not on our own strength, but on his strength. United to the one who unrelentingly holds the stars in his hand. Who walks in intimate fellowship among his people. And who has already secured our victory. Weep no more says the elder to John in Revelation 5.5. 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so blessed by your word. What a gift. What a gift for you to have given your people. We pray now, Lord, that you will use this passage this morning to fix our eyes on the one who holds the stars in his hand and walks among his people. Give us a glorious vision of the Savior of the world, our beloved Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that as we read and reread this passage, that you will encourage us, that you will convict us, that you will call us to a life of faith, putting our faith in our Savior, the one who has conquered. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.